I think about how would I feel if someone else was making all of the decisions about food for me? How would I come to the table? And I can tell you, you for a fact so that grumpy. I would be the worst. <laughs> oh my God, you would, would be, be so like hard to feed. <laughs> everyone's nightmare. Because Amy's very opinionated about what she likes. <laughs> You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, anti-fat bias, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. Today is such a fun episode, especially if you are someone who's been following my work for a while, someone who listened to my very first podcast, because Amy Palanjian is here with us today. For new listeners, Amy Palanjian is the creator of Yummy Toddler Food, the wildly popular blog and Instagram and internet empire about feeding your kids. She also writes the awesome Substack newsletter, YTF Community, which I really love. It's like just super practical, often just like immediately solves my what am I making for dinner conundrum. So definitely subscribe to that if you haven't already. And she is the author of a brand new cookbook, Dinnertime SOS, 100 Sanity-Saving Meals That Parents and Kids of All Ages Will Actually Want to Eat. Amy is also my very best friend. She is my longtime work wife. We met when we were just wee little baby women's magazine assistants. We have really grown up together. We have gone through all of the things. And she is just always so much fun to have on the podcast. Plus, I learned something genuinely super useful that makes my own parenting and especially my parenting around feeding my kids just feel better and easier every time we hang out. So you are going to love this episode. Here's Amy, but first a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick and mortar bookstore. But it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon, including Amy Palangian, who you will hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk, plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash burnt toast bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. It's nice to see your face. I know, not just my texting. Um, (laughs) This is definitely a requested, like, when is Amy coming back on the podcast? Frequent listener request. So... Here you go, people. I made it happen. I got you, Amy. So enjoy. <laughs> All right. We are talking about your new cookbook. Tell us about the book. Yes. The book is called Dinnertime SOS. 
And it is 100 recipes to help you feed your family at the end of the day when you would rather be doing all the other things, but everyone still needs to eat. So it is through the lens of understanding that families are tired at that time of the day (laughs) and also hungry, but like, how do we make it realistic for parents to feed everyone given all of the long list of challenges that we all have? I just have to say, like, people. There are other books that kind of claim to help you with family dinner, and I always have encountered them and felt very inadequate because I think their solution is to help me cook from scratch more every night or to help me achieve some level of elegance on my table every night, like to like achieve some kind of... Vision of or just dinner. make this recipe. Right, right. And this book is like, I actually understand that you need to feed people and here is how you will do it. And the food is still pretty. Like the book is so, so pretty, you guys. Oh my gosh, the photos are gorgeous. Like the food looks amazing. But it's like doable in a way that so many cookbooks about dinner time are not doable to me. Yeah, I just need to articulate that. And I made a lot of deliberate decisions about the types of ingredients that I was using and also the methods. Because one complaint that I get, not specifically about my recipes, although sometimes it applies to me, if I'm being honest, is like the way that we creators sell recipes with the words easy and quick, like it doesn't take into consideration all of the thinking that you've done up until the point that you get the food out. And then there's the time of finding all the ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, there's like the cook time captured yes. that may or may not be accurate. And then there's all of the cleanup. So it's like the time that we tell you that will a recipe will take is not accurate. And I'm not saying that the the book doesn't like tell you like how long it's going to take you to find the ingredients in your kitchen. And like the actual part of making the food is as streamlined as possible. And it really, I was like, how can I use a knife less? Like what can I not chop here and figure out a different thing that's going to add flavor? What's an easier way to do this? Could I do this if I was holding my three-year-old at the same time? I mean, the ingredients lists are short. We don't talk enough about how long it takes me to find things in my kitchen. (laughs) Like, how long it takes me to remember if I have that one specific Asian condiment or whatever it is that I bought for a recipe eight months ago and haven't used since, and is it still good? Like, all of that. The book is so helpful and refreshing and just a really, really supportive approach to this very complicated topic. And I also love, right off the bat, In the introduction, very early on, you say that your starting point when deciding what's for dinner is what do you want to eat, which, yes. I mean, this goes back (laughs) to for OG listeners, when we did our comfort food podcast, we were very big on our mantra of feed yourself first as a way to survive family mealtime. So I feel like I... I helped play a little small role in, in that being <laughs> yes. in the in the cookbook. But yeah, talk about that. Like, why is it so important to start and to start at the beginning of a family dinner cookbook saying, what do I, the cook, and presumably very often, not always, the mother want to eat? I have more energy to make something when I know at the end of it, I'm going to get to enjoy food that I like. And also, it can reduce your feelings 
if someone else decides that they do not want it, mm. if you still wind up with a meal that you like. And this doesn't mean to not take other people's preferences into consideration. It simply means to not leave yourself out and to make yourself a central figure so that you have like intrinsic motivation to prepare this meal that's not just feeding everybody else. I think all of these videos on social media where it's like moms meal prepping for their kids and I'm sort of like, what are you eating? It's not fair that that's the way that we've set it up. I mean, some of the most crushing dinners I've had are when I have leaned into what I think my kids will eat. Like I've made pancakes for dinner and I love pancakes, but I wouldn't normally want pancakes for dinner. But I'm like, we're doing pancakes for dinner. And then nobody eats pancakes because this is the week when no one in my house likes pancakes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I didn't freaking want pancakes. <laughs> right. And then you're like stuck with it. We have like 40 pancakes that I just made because I thought y'all would eat it and you don't want to eat it. And I would have loved to just get sushi or something. And here we are. So, yeah, I definitely agree with this. Like thinking about what you want to eat first and then how can you make that work for them as opposed to starting just from the kid's perspective and then kind of forgetting that you also are going to eat this meal. I think it's also important modeling because in so much of our daily life, we're doing things for other people. And I think it's good for the kids to see us being able to enjoy something as like a primary reason for doing it. Yeah. <laughs> that just doesn't really happen that much. Especially if the thing you're enjoying is feeding yourself. That seems good for kids to see that, mm -hmm. again, women especially sit down at tables of food that they enjoy and then eat it and enjoy eating right. it. I love it. That's wonderful. You also talk quite a bit about how you think about feeding your kids. It's definitely rooted in the division of responsibility model, which I will link to for any new listeners who don't know what that is. This is something you and I have definitely both ascribed to for a long time, but become somewhat looser in how we use over the years. So I would love to have you talk a little bit about your approach. One of my goals when making dinner for everyone is that the food on the table is the food that we have available for dinner simply to limit the chaos. It's not for me a way to quote unquote get anyone to eat certain foods. It is really to streamline the number of people in the kitchen taking things out of cabinets and such. Mm -hmm. And I want to create a dynamic where we can share a meal and have that be sort of like part of our normal life with the flexibility in there that everyone can eat whatever they want from the table. Mm -hmm. So I do follow it pretty clearly for dinner as far as like I'm the one who decides what the dinner is and like what the components are, where it's served and when. And then once we get there, the kids can decide how much and which foods. But like I do also keep in mind what I think the kids will eat. And it, it makes me put things on the table like applesauce or hummus and pita or right. like adding some other random food if I don't think that they're going to like like the stir fry that I made mm -hmm. as a way to achieve the other goal of like eating together. If I can have a meal where no one has to get up and get something else, I feel like that's kind of what I'm aiming for. It always feels like a fine line that we're all navigating of how much am I being in charge of what's offered, putting options on the table that are considerate of every eater at the table? And when does that bleed over into becoming a short order cook? Like, and now I'm just making five separate dinners. Like, 
that is always such a gray area for so many families. Mm -hmm. I don't cook separate food. So that would be the difference. Mm -hmm. I'm not like making mac and cheese for the kids when I make a stir fry for myself because Mm -hmm. I think they're not going to eat it. I assume that there may be one or two kids who are going to like part of the stir fry. Maybe I left some of the bell peppers raw in a bowl because I know they prefer them that way. Mm -hmm. And I have the rice separately. I have like chopped peanuts separately and I have some fruit on the table. And I sort of know my kids well enough to know that everyone can find at least like one or two things in there. It's the cooking of a separate thing that I think is where like it can like really quickly feel so overwhelming. And so that is why like flexibility with the way that you're serving meals. So with like using toppings, Mm -hmm. like if you have like a bowl of some kind with a variety of elements, then you can have like yogurt and herbs and hot sauce and like chopped nuts or seeds and like one kid might just eat yogurt, mm-hmm. but like, hooray. <laughs> it's like, I don't really care what the thing is yeah. as long as we can sort of like have it be kind of one thing. This resonates. And I admit it is something that is still a struggle in my house. Like, you know, my kids, you know, I'll decide that like I'm putting out bread and butter as the thing. And then one kid will be like, but I want peanut butter instead of butter. And it's like... <laughs> It's not short order cooking to go get the peanut butter, but the peanut butter doesn't go with the rest of the meals. For anyone who's listening to this and feeling stressed out by it, like we hear you. It is. Yeah, yeah. There are these moments. I guess in that situation, though, I would consider peanut butter a condiment. And so fine. We can get another condiment. Right. Because we're not like cooking. But that would be the same as like if I put carrots on the table and one of my kids was like, you need to get the ranch. And I was like, oh, yes. Right, right, right. Fair, fair. Yeah. But if you put carrots on the table and they were like, I wanted a banana. That would be like, you can have a banana before you go to bed. I don't know. It depends on the context. I don't want anyone to like listen to this and be like, they said no bananas at the table. <laughs> I think it depends. Like, it depends on your bandwidth. It depends yeah. how many kids you have. It depends on how many bananas you have. I don't know. Right, right. Like, Do you need the bananas tomorrow? No, this totally makes sense. I think what often goes awry for families and where your book will be so helpful is you get stuck down these little rabbit holes of the banana or the carrots or the ranch or whatever it is. And you can, like, make those calls in the moment however you want to make them and not be straying from the bigger picture of, like, one family, one meal. And, you know, like, it's okay. You're not saying this has to happen in a certain way every night. I think also when you remove the perspective that dinner is a time to get everyone to eat a certain amount of food, a lot of this becomes easier because you're not trying to like find that perfect food that everyone's going to want to eat. It's like you recognize that some kids will eat more. Some kids will eat less. Some kids might need a bedtime snack, but this is just one opportunity. It doesn't have to like hit every mark. Like, especially with my youngest who often doesn't eat dinner still, like he's the most unpredictable of Mm -hmm. my kids. I can't reliably put something on the table that I know he'll eat because I honestly never know where he's going to be with his hunger. So I do my best and I remember like he can always have a snack later. It's not like this is the only point. That is so helpful. I think a lot of times you view or not you, but like we people individuals, maybe me, view (laughs) them then needing the bedtime snack as like a failure of dinner. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we failed to get them to eat at dinner. So now that they need a bedtime snack, that's like symbolic of how it all fell apart. And it's like, no, that's just, they weren't that hungry at dinner. Now they're hungry. Give them a snack. Like, it's fine. But like, 
you, because I know you so well, often need a mid-morning snack or a second breakfast, and it is not a failure of your first breakfast. No, absolutely not. <laughs> first breakfast and second breakfast are very, they're a symbiotic relationship, actually. Right, right. <laughs> and like for my son, if he eats of like a full dinner, he will still want a bedtime snack. Right, it's right. not like it's one or the other. It just totally depends on the kid. And also... This might like come and go in phases, like whatever you decide to do that works for your family now might not be the same as two years from now. I was on someone else's podcast recently and she was like, we started doing the backup meal because I heard you and Virginia talk about it. And I was like, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) Okay, we're going there. That is breaking news on the podcast. I forget when you told me you don't do backup meals. I think I was with you at some point in person. That's right. So whenever Amy and I get together, I kind of make her do like a therapy session with me where I troubleshoot what's happening with my family dinners and why they're falling apart and she fixes them. It's a real perk of having her as your best friend. <laughs> so the last time you were on this podcast, though, I think was the backup meal episode. So I will link to it so folks can listen to it. But what you need to know is that I continued doing backup meals for a very long time and family dinner really went off the rails for a while. And Amy, very sensibly, recognized when it was a tool that no longer served her. So discuss. Yes. So I do not remember when we had that conversation about the backup meal, but I do know that having three children who are capable of getting into the fridge by themselves rendered the backup meal complete (laughs) chaos. I think Selway was maybe not on solids or maybe like just, you know, still in a high chair. Yeah, and, yeah. I think I did it when I had two children and only one of them was capable of getting herself right. a backup meal. Right. That's the difference. So now that there are three of them, If one person gets up to get toast or to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, Mm -hmm. it's like a snowball. Like, it doesn't matter what else is on the table. They will want the other thing, too. Or they'll want a different, they'll want to, that's what's happening with me. Or a different thing. They never wanted the same backup meal. So one kid's microwaving a frozen burrito, and the other kid is like, I want puffy Cheez-Its for my backup meal. And I'm like, what is happening? And all those foods are great, but they weren't what I made for dinner. And then you have all this food that doesn't have a chance of being eaten. So for me, it was simply like it was too chaotic. And I honestly, we 100% have not done it since so it was born. Because I like remember Lyndon a couple times making herself a sandwich, but we have not done it in like we don't do it in this current house where I live. That's <laughs> not done it since we moved here. Oh, my so. God. So major rescinding of the backup meal. No, what I'm going to say, though, is I think there are just seasons in life where one family, one meal is not your priority or your goal. Right. I think we both were using them more. Yeah. When we had one older child and one baby or toddler, because when you have like a learning eater, they're often like not able to eat the same food as the rest of the families. I mean, yeah, the baby led weaning folks will tell you you can all eat the same food. But like realistically, for a little while there, one person is eating spoonfuls of hummus or whatever, and the rest of you want dinner. You're in this more short order cooking stage. And then it feels like less of a failing to be like, oh, I'm letting this other kid have something. And I think too, like, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom in like just recognizing when family dinner is just not the goal, period, that this is a season of life where your schedules don't allow it or your children's bedtime doesn't allow it, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like us saying that it's not working for us right now doesn't mean that if it's working for you that it's a bad option. It just means that you may at some point start having issues that might be a reason to look at how it's functioning. 
And that's, I think, what happened with me is we had gotten in a place where backup meal really had started to turn into short order cooking. And I had tried various things. I mean, I will link to the family meal planning. That helped it for a while. Then everyone got really sick of family meal planning. But I think that's still a useful tool for kind of like bringing everyone back to the table, brainstorming Mm -hmm. meals everyone likes, like super helpful. But then when it was back to just me meal planning, I think then I just wasn't meal planning. So we were in a, we're winging dinner a lot more. I mean, look, like launching a book, dinner was sort of a a shit show for a few months there. (laughs) But yeah, and then Amy was like, I think your backup meal is working against you now. You kind of, you staged a little intervention on me and it was very helpful. Well, because it was kind of clear that you like you would decide on dinner and then the kids just knew that they could. Yeah, they would come to the table and scream that they hated it and go get backup meals of whatever, yeah. Cheerios or burritos or whatever. And I would be annoyed and it would not be a great scene. And so <laughs> we did switch. I got back to meal planning and writing dinners on the whiteboard so that the one kid who likes to know in advance what's for dinner can see it and, like, work out her feelings. And in her defense, she was like, I actually haven't been yelling. I've just been getting my backup meal. And I was like, you know, that's true. But now I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> and she's rolled with it. She's like, I can just eat the white rice. She's working with it. The younger one is having a little bit of a harder time. She's still more prone to sit down and complain. But the complaining is getting shorter. Mm -hmm. And she's working around it. What I did do was I was like, so this is like backup meal light, maybe your backup meal like (laughs) with a little more structure. I narrowed the options. So if you really hate what's on the dinner table and I have put nothing on there that you can work with, you can get an apple, banana, or granola bar. And so worst case scenario, she will eat a granola bar for dinner and then have her bedtime snack and it's fine. So if you feel like you still need some insurance policy because – you know, the other reality is, like, we have different levels of cautious eater in our households. Right, and right. my kids' list of accepted foods is shorter than what you're working with. So, yeah, having just, like, a few clear backup options is sometimes useful. But big picture, Amy's over backup meals. You heard it first. <laughs> All right. So now that we've worked through my feelings about backup meals, we have a bunch of questions from listeners. So, yeah, we're going to run through these. These mostly came in over Instagram this morning. People who are excited about Amy being back on the show. All right. First question. How did your eating habits change when you first had kids eating solids? Okay. So at that point, I don't think I knew what intuitive eating was. I didn't know what responsive feeding was. I think I was close enough to the eating disorder that I had that I've come a long way in the way I think about food since then. So a lot of the way that I interacted with food when I had my first daughter was the sort of classic way where you try to limit processed foods and you don't let them have sugar until they're two and you have a fear of goldfish. Like I was that person at that time and... It was like a process of me learning sort of the context around all of that, but also just letting her be a person who was separate from me and understanding that the feeding of kids has to be a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a place where you can control everything. And that is sort of where I had started, where I wanted so badly to tightly control the food that she was exposed to because I 
believed the bill of goods that I had been sold that whatever she ate as a baby and as a one-year-old was mm-hmm. going to dictate the way that she eats growing up. And I think I sort of just needed to experience how much that's not true to like be able to embody it with the other kids who came after her. Mm. So I feel a little bit badly that like she was kind of like the learning curve. I mean, first kids, right? Poor first yeah. kids. Right. The way that our culture talks about food has shifted in 11 years. Yeah, there really wasn't this conversation about feeding kids when we right. both, for both of us first became parents. My older daughter's a year younger than yours, but for sure, like this was not, I would argue that Amy Palangian has actually been instrumental <laughs> in shifting this conversation <laughs> on the internet and certainly at least on Instagram. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even like, I, I guess I don't know if that question was actually like wanting to know if I did like baby led weaning. Like, was that like I more actually like read a- it because she said, or this person said, how did your eating habits change? So oh. I think they wanted to know about like how we changed feeding ourselves. Okay. So the thing that we started this off with, with feeding yourself first, mm. like that was something that like very quickly went by the wayside. Yeah, we were not feeding ourselves first. <laughs> no. Then. no. And also like during that first pregnancy and then while I was breastfeeding, I really outsourced what I thought I needed to eat every day to like protein charts and like ounces of water. And this is not to like say anything negative about the birthing class that I went to, which was otherwise great, but it was like, you need to eat this many grams of protein while you're pregnant or else sort of, or like you need to eat this, you need to drink this many ounces of water and this much protein in order to be able to provide enough milk, which just took all of my internal cues outside of myself which it took me a while to like get that back. And I didn't do that with the other two pregnancies and postpartum periods. But you really have to like fight against all of the messaging around you. If you're pregnant and you don't, I mean, it is important to have nutrition, but there is a difference between making yourself eat something when you're not hungry for it Mm -hmm. and it's not appealing than like sort of keeping an eye on like the baseline. Like, you weren't on a diet to lose weight, but you were, like, on the breastfeeding diet. You were like, I need to eat according to this plan to have optimal pregnancy nutrition, optimal breastfeeding nutrition. Right. It's like I would add extra protein to things in a way that I don't think I needed to. And I wasn't focusing on, like, how did my body feel? Mm -hmm. Was I hungry for that? That's not where I was starting from. I was starting from, like, I'm going to do this right. Yeah. So that's a different. For sure, when I was pregnant with my oldest, it was very like, we are building a healthy baby with every bite we take. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for me, then having a baby with a serious medical condition kind of revealed the lie of that, (laughs) (laughs) that it turns out eating so-called perfectly does not guarantee your child's health. And nor is health the entire goal of having a baby. Right. They're still really great. Even if they have <laughs> chronic health conditions, they're still the most amazing thing that ever happened to you. So, yeah, that was a whole big shift for me. But I think we, like, really, we hit on the feed yourself first mantra. I'm trying to think how old the kids were. Tula was, like, already a toddler. She was, like, one. And I was pregnant with Beatrix, and then I had Beatrix, or had I already had Beatrix? I don't remember. We did our podcast like before I was pregnant with Selway and then when I was pregnant. Yeah. I remember we did an episode about weaning Beatrix off bottles. So Beatrix was there. 
when we were doing the podcast (laughs) because I remember that was a very popular episode. Okay. So we were on like second kids when we hit on Feed Yourself First. Like the whole first kid experience was us kind of sacrificing our own needs to feeding our children in these quote perfect whatever ways realizing that that was actually making us deeply miserable and Mm -hmm. making parenthood much harder than it needed to be. And then the second time around, (laughs) being a lot more like, what do I need to be able to function? How do I support my own needs through this? Wow, we've come a long way. (laughs) All right. This person writes, how do I fight the comparison game when one kid will eat anything and the other has a limited palate? I know the answer to this, and it is to have two children with limited palates that don't like any of the same foods. <laughs> so good luck. That's that's what my life is. <laughs> is that not the answer? So I don't know. This is like a hard one to answer because the way that that's playing out could be like a thousand different ways. Yep. Is that causing there to be no options to make for dinner that everyone in the family will like? Is it causing meltdowns at the table? Like, we don't know what this is resulting in other than we know it's causing stress. Mm-hmm. I think as much as possible, if you can think about yourself, this is what I do. If I can think about myself and I think about how would I feel if someone else was making all of the decisions about food for me, how would I come to the table? And I can tell <laughs> you, you would for be a fact so that grumpy. I would be the worst. <laughs> oh my God, you would, would be, be so like, hard to feed. <laughs> Everyone's nightmare. Because Amy's very opinionated about what she likes. (laughs) See, here's the thing about me. If I am stressed at all, there would maybe be one food that's appealing. Right. The likelihood of someone else knowing what that is, is like slim to none. Yeah. And so I can very clearly like identify with what it feels like to be in that powerless position Mm -hmm. because it feels pretty awful. So the ways that you can give that child who feels that way a little bit of power might be, is there a way that they can engage with what you're making before it gets to the table? Like, Mm. can they help you wash something? And this is not a case for having kids help you cook. It is simply like, how can you give them a heads up on what's coming so that they have some time? I mean, writing the meals on the whiteboard is all I do for one of my kids, but that really helps her because she can at least see and know what it is. Right. And then she feels a little calmer coming to the table and more ready to navigate. Or if you can, like, talk through, like, we are having these three things on the dinner table. Is there something that we can add Mm -hmm. to it that will make this happier for you? Yes. Can be helpful. I think, like... Just remember that everyone is different and this could flip-flop in a year. Like Mm, it's possible that this is not going to be the way that it is. And maybe the one kid goes to school and they find like school lunches that they like or they see their friends eating stuff and they want to try different things. I'm also thinking like this person says the comparison game. And I'm wondering if they're speaking to like grandmother's comments on like one kid is such a good eater and one kid's not a good eater and that kind of thing. And I do think that's a real moment to advocate for your cautious eater, your selective eater, whatever term you want to use, and say, like, we're letting them figure this out in their own time. We're not worried about how they're eating. We don't see a problem here. Everyone has different preferences. You really need to make it, like, okay for your child to have preferences, Mm -hmm. even if they are very selective. You need to make a safe space for that. 
or they will never move past the rigidity. But also, they may not move past the rigidity, and they need to feel okay about their relationship with food, even if they never become more adventurous. Like, they still deserve to feel good about eating. So I think that's, like, definitely setting some boundaries with relatives. I think in your own head and heart, it can be harder. I think it's maybe okay if there are times where you're like, this kid is a lot easier to feed than this kid. And maybe also, like, try to get to, like, your real worry under it. Mm, that's Like, good. what is the thing that you're afraid of happening? If there is something that's other than the stress it's causing at the table, are you worried that this is going to cause something else to happen? And then put it through the filter of, like, is that plausible? Or is it actually terrible? I mean, right. a, a lot of times this comes back to either anxiety that this child who's a selective eater is in a small body or anxiety that this child who's a selective eater is in a big body. Right. And if you're identifying this is actually related to some anti-fat bias of I'm going to have this child in a bigger body because they don't eat vegetables, number one, that is not a true sentence. Like body size is not determined by vegetable consumption. And number two, like you need to work on letting go of that and making them feel safe in their body, whatever size it Mm. is. All right. Any thoughts on how long kids should be sitting at the table for family dinner time? (laughs) So my feeling on this is however long it works for your family. Mm -hmm. I do not do like a number of minutes per year, like math equation. (laughs) We want a thousand Uh, hours of family dinner. It's like that outdoors time (laughs) thing. No, but I think there's like something like you can expect two minutes per age of year of the child. Oh, that sounds realistic. Yeah, that sounds like math that's going to check out. That sounds like um, a real helpful metric to have in our heads. Lord. In our house, they stay at the table until they're done eating or until they don't want to talk to us anymore. Yeah. That's same. where same. I land. Like I am not like everyone needs to learn their table manners and sit at this table until everyone's done. Because sometimes the kids leave and then you have a chance to like finish your meal in silence, which is nice. I don't have strong feelings about that one. I agree. I think this can be one of those hills to die on that doesn't really get you anything. You're bringing another power struggle to a situation that like already breeds plenty of power struggle <laughs> potential. I will say, though, that sometimes this question is asked when someone has, like, a one-year-old who doesn't like sitting in their high chair. Oh, interesting. And they like to be eating while they're running around. And I would recommend trying to not do that because that can, like, not only is it a choking hazard, but it's, like, chaotic. Mm -hmm. So if you can, like, A, make sure that the kid is comfortable in their chair, like, does the high chair need to be adjusted? Do they need to move to a booster seat? Like, make sure that they're supported in a comfortable way and then feed them. And when they're done, let them go. But I do kind of feel like it is important to have meals at the meal place Mm -hmm. versus wherever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd probably be a little more loosey-goosey about that. I just think there's seasons of life or phases of life where dinner has to be in the car because you're on your way to activities. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just don't want to have a banana, like, mushed into the couch cushions. That's a valid boundary to maintain. (laughs) I like that for you. As as someone who picked an apple core up out of the playroom this morning and really doesn't have a timestamp on it, I can support that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. This person says, I love the ebook you two wrote together about feeding kids. Any plans for future collabs like that? Aw, I had forgotten that we wrote a great ebook. I know, we did write a great ebook. Yeah, that was basically like the best of our podcast. Yeah. Are we going to do another one? 
someday, maybe. I don't think we should do another ebook. I think that at some point we should do like a mini podcast series. I am so on board for this. Yes. Yeah. More breaking news. No more backup <laughs> meals and some kind of mini podcast series. TBD, maybe 2024? Question mark? Yeah. We'll ish. Yeah, ish. <laughs> I mean, the thing about writing ebooks is there it was a lot of work. As like someone who cannot even get like the have like my to-do list right now is like there is this newsletter that I cannot find the time to write. I'm like, yeah. there's no writing of anything else. No, no, no. I mean, you are now in I just finished book launch season. You are now in book launch season. Book launch season does not allow for time for other projects. It's also just my busiest time with like partnership posts. Every day is like did you do this thing yet? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so not just yet, but stay tuned. Possible new mini podcast coming out at some point when we have both had more sleep. So, yeah, <laughs> that is the answer. Oh, Corinne had this question. This is a good one. She wants to know, Amy, what recipes from the new cookbook would you make for your friends? I have a lot of child-free followers, maybe more than Yummy Toddler Food does, possibly. And I often hear from folks, about how they love your work because it helps them learn to cook during college or it's helping them, like, feed themselves as child-free adults, just, like, living by yourself, trying to figure out a meal schedule. Like, this is such a gift of your work as well. I love the comments from people that have no kids and they're like, I'm coming out of an eating disorder and I love the way that you talk about food. And I'm like, thank you for being here. That's uh, the greatest. That's my favorite. Yeah, but, like, what's a good, like, dinner party recipe from the book? There is like a rice noodle salad with peanut sauce. It's a cold salad, so you can prep it ahead of time. You can use any kind of rice noodles that you want. And then it has like shredded cabbage and carrots, fresh herbs if you want, chopped peanuts. So it's like textured and fresh and really yummy, but also you don't have to make peanut sauce from scratch if you don't want to. So it's very easy. So that is one. There is a shortcut bolognese, which I'm sure someone might yell at me for the method on this. I'm <laughs> calling it that, but it is what it is. It is very easy. And it's like one of those recipes that is perfect for a dinner party. It's perfect to like make on vacation because mm. you can buy the three ingredients or four ingredients and then you don't have to like do anything to them. Like if you're in like an Airbnb and you're like, yeah. how are we going to scratch And you don't have dinner? like a whole. Right. You yep. don't have a spice right. cabinet. Like when I was testing it, it was like in March. I don't remember how many years ago. And there were like three recipes I needed to test. And we were in a rental. And I was like, can I just buy the things I need for this and not need anything else and like make these? And I remember that specifically was one of the ones that we did there. So that is really yummy. And then there's like a broccoli cheesy toast situation that is like Italian bread with cooked broccoli, melted cheese, and like lemon zest, Ooh. which is really yummy. So that would be like a good appetizer. I will definitely be cooking from this for dinner parties <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. This one says, you have known each other for so long. How has your friendship changed over the years? Aww. We have known each other so long. We have known each other, I want to say 20 years. Yeah, I think that's right. Was it 2003 or 2004? Maybe it was 2004. So interestingly, I can never remember the year that I moved to New York, nor can I remember how long I lived there. <laughs> One thing that has not changed is that Amy's memory is not razor sharp. <laughs> My memory is not good. I cannot remember dates and I cannot remember plots of books. For 20 years, I have been having to fill in these it's, gaps, people. It's really great when I go to book club and I'm like, 
I don't remember. <laughs> this was a book with some people in it. They did some things. I felt some feelings. I don't remember character names like ever, which is really embarrassing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. To answer the question, I think we text a lot more than we. Well, did yeah. In there the it was the dark days. ages. Did we even have texting in the early two thousands? I, I mean, we didn't so. have smartphones, so no. we had to communicate by letter. By letter. <laughs> No, we shared an office. <laughs> we just talked to each we other. We sat next to each other for 12 right. hours a day. And we did email a lot through the like office yes. email. I would say mode of communication has changed. I don't know. We're like a lot of the same. Yeah, I mean, we always have talked about like business goals and mm-hmm. career goals. Yeah. And we still do that. We grew our careers together, definitely. Yeah. I watched The Empire of Yummy Toddler <laughs> Food expand. <laughs> I mean, that is a difference, right? Like we were magazine editorial assistants and right. now you run an empire so that's when things have changed <laughs> do you mean 20 years <laughs> we had to happen? get some stuff done <laughs> <laughs> i had to keep i had to like figure out a way to stop losing magazine jobs <laughs> same same done pretty well with the pivot <laughs> actually i think something that has changed someone was asking me about this in another interview and i was sort of reflecting on it like with our whole friend group like we were both, like, way more diety in our 20s, right? Like, we were in diet culture in different ways, like, pretty intensively. And I think that was not, like, what we bonded over necessarily. I remember, actually, we bonded at our first magazine job over how much more dieting everybody else was. Right. Remember, we used to say we were on the eat food diet because we actually ate lunch and a lot of people didn't. Mm-hmm. So I stand by that one. <laughs> but there were times where we were both, like, in different spaces with this. Well, and I was still, like, recovering from an eating disorder at that point. Totally. So and was, like, in therapy. I had a very dysfunctional relationship with running in my 20s, like, all of that. But I think, like, so often I hear from people who worry, like, when they stop dieting, like, what will I talk to my female friends about? Right. And right. I don't really remember that being a hard shift for us. We talk about cheese? Oh, like, we... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We talk about food a ton. We definitely talk about food a ton. And we did love food then, too. Like, we were going out to dinner all the time in the city and stuff. But I think we pivoted fairly somehow easily to, like, we don't hate on our bodies anymore. Like, we don't talk about intentional weight loss together. Like, we, I don't know. That's, like, I'm proud of us. That's all I'm saying. I'm proud of us. Yeah. Another thing is now we live close enough that we can, like, drive and see each other. Yes. So much of our relationship has been long distance, which has really been hard. Yes. The time period that Amy is referencing, we lived in the city, in New York City, together for about six years. I can remember dates. I left the city in 2009, and I believe you did as well. And then we were long distance, Iowa to New York, until two years ago. So a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A decade of long-distance best friends. And now we're still four hours apart, but it's like we can meet at the shore. We can see each other more. Yeah. And this segues perfectly to the last question, which is favorite ways to maintain your long-distance friendship. And then a related question that came in, do you ever feel jealous when your faraway friends starts making new friends close by? You will remember the time that I told you that you should have zoomed me into one of your book clubs (laughs) because you were talking about me. I was like, I could have been there. <laughs> You're what so welcome this? to Zoom into Hot Tub Book Club. We will put a phone at the edge of the hot tub. That can totally happen. All of my local friends are obsessed with you. I don't remember. What what was the first half of the question? How I'm do we sorry. maintain a long-distance friendship? So I don't know if our friend group, so we have like a text 
group. A group text. With, yeah. I don't know if our use of it is normal, <laughs> but I was... <laughs> It's a prolific text chat. It's basically everyone who was a bridesmaid in my wedding, right? It started when your daughter was in the hospital. Right. That's what it was. So it was like I put my four best friends, Amy, Kate, Catherine, and Liz, we will shout everyone out, on a text thread when Violet was in the hospital because I was like, I need a place to dump all of my feelings while I'm doing this. And it was amazing. And then it just became like, of course, our group chat. And Liz is a teacher, so she does have to mute it a lot because she actually has a job where she can't During be on the test all day. But the rest of us are chatty. There are a lot of memes. I don't know. Beyond texting, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been the main thing. But it's been like, I don't really, other than feeling left out of your book group. No. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I think that the hardest part of being an adult when you move anywhere is making friends. Yeah. And the way that you feel in your community can like transform the way you feel in your life. And so I'm always delighted to know that people have found that like wherever they are, because like when we moved to a small town in Iowa, it took almost until I was like ready to move from there for me to have like found Mm -hmm. people. And so I think that, If anyone can do it, it's, like, more power to you. Yeah, and I feel like I was only thrilled when you started finding those friends. And now I'm only thrilled that you have, like, your hiking buddies and your book club in Pennsylvania. I'm just like, oh, good. She's awesome. She'll know other awesome people. These people will be my friends, too. Like, I guess I just know I'm irreplaceable, so I'm not worried about (laughs) competition, if that's what we're talking about. Good luck. Are you available at 530 in the morning is (laughs) a key criteria here. (laughs) Well, actually, there are people on our group chat who stay up later and sleep later than we do, but Amy and I have a sidebar text (laughs) that is strictly between the hours of 5 a.m. and, like, 7 p.m. Because we both know we're not available after that. (laughs) We're in our pajamas. I would also say you are also very good with, like, sending a card or sending, like, something in the mail. Like, you have, like, really done that so much over the years. I don't think I've been good at that. I'm not really reciprocating that well. But I admire it in you. And I appreciate it. Thanks. You'll, like, send cookies or something. I did send you brownies. Yeah, they were really appreciated. I have some people in my life where I'd be like, I would not know what to send that Mm. person. But, like, I always know that I can send you page (laughs) codes. My desires are specific (laughs) and clear. Yes. (laughs) It's not. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This was so much fun. All right. Should we do better? Do you have a better for us? Okay. So Justin's, the peanut butter brand, makes chocolate almond butter. Okay. That is seriously delicious. And I have been pairing it with... I have a recipe for zucchini banana bread that's like zucchini bread mashed with banana bread. It's like just a loaf of bread. So okay. the two of those things together is like the most delicious breakfast with coffee. That does sound really good. Highly recommend. Also eating it with a spoon. Mm. I'm suspect on the almond butter part. As you know, I'm not really down with it tastes almond. like It tastes like chocolate. I, don't I know. mean, the chocolate saves it. I'm assuming so. (laughs) And the zucchini bread or banana bread sounds great. I like it. Let's see. My butter. Did I tell you how I found my most sought after houseplant ever? No. Well, I did. I have wanted a variegated monstera for a very long time. This is a very specific houseplant. We're going houseplant nerd here. Amy's not a houseplant nerd. I mean, she likes a houseplant, but she's not 
She's not weird about it like I am. <laughs> She's like some normal amount. How does one go about finding a rare houseplant? Well, I mean, there's like whole online worlds. I'm drawing some lines around my life and I'm not becoming that person. But I have just been talking to my friend Marcella, who runs, you know, the local flower store and mentioning variegated monsteras. <laughs> frequently in conversation and she was like they're really hard to get like the wholesalers like don't grow them a lot and it's weird because if you go like when we were in Mexico like if you go anywhere else in the world where like the monstera is like a weed basically like you will see the variegated monsteras growing like 60 feet up the side of buildings I wish I'd brought cuttings back but <laughs> that might be against the law yeah probably it's like an agricultural product I don't need to know those details all I know is I <laughs> wish I did it and I didn't but anyway she finally got them in and I got one and it's already putting on like three new leaves and I'm so happy and just stay tuned everybody because we're on a journey. It's tiny because they're like really expensive and I had to get a tiny one to start. It's bringing me a lot of joy. So I'm excited for you. I know you're indulgent of my houseplant obsession. <laughs> I mean, you may need a cutting. You've got all those beautiful windows in your living room. You have really great plant light. That's true. I may maybe I'll figure out. I don't know if I can mail it, but next time I visit, I'll bring one. Okay. Okay. Awesome, Amy. Thank you for doing this. This was so fun. Tell everyone where they can follow you, how they can support your work. Everybody, go get your copy of Dinnertime SOS. <laughs> so the book is available wherever books are sold. So you can go to your favorite retailer. My website is yummytoddlerfood.com. My newsletter is called YTF Community, which is one of my new favorite businessy things that has happened in the past few months and on social i'm everywhere at yummy toddler food awesome thanks for doing this thanks for having me thanks so much for listening to burnt toast if you'd like to support the show please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review they really help folks find the show and help us grow and you can consider a paid subscription to the burnt toast newsletter it's just five dollars a month or 50 for the year you get a ton of cool perks, and you keep this an ad in sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com or just click the link in your episode description. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism. <laughs>